Have you ever heard someone say something to, to this effect? That, well, you know, we did it in Jesus' name. Right? Whatever that might be. Well, you know, this activity we did, we, we, we were engaged in it in, in Jesus' name. Does that, that should make it okay, right? You ever heard that? Probably have to some extent or the other. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. About what it means to indeed do something in Jesus' name. And a little bit more about that as we go along. And talk about how even the things done in Jesus' name need to be done correctly. And by the authority of God. So if we say that, you know, well, didn't we do it in Jesus' name? That makes it, that makes it okay, right? So I... I did it in Jesus' name, so it's got to be okay. And as we said, you know, we've probably heard that argument before, whatever it might be, especially in the religious world. The religious world takes this and, and, and runs with it, as we discussed this morning in our Bible classes. It opens it up for man's interpretation. If they come back to, well, we're doing it in the name of the Lord. And they might say, well, you know what? I think, I think God would be okay with it. You know, we're doing it in, in the Lord's name, and I think that God would be okay with it. Well, you might hear, hear something like this, you know, I think he would be okay with it. After all, we're doing it in his name. So that's how someone might justify their actions, whatever they be. Their intentions may be good. And their intentions may be right, and their intentions may may be in line with what Scripture says, but the act of carrying it out is important as well. How you go about carrying it out. Has God authorized this in this manner? So that's what we'll look at this morning. And Jesus speaks to this argument here in Matthew chapter 7. So if you're there in chapter 7 of Matthew, read along with me, verses 22 and 23. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. See, there's the, there's the name of the Lord right there, right? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we, didn't we um, cast out demons and perform many miracles? Look what Jesus says in verse 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, there's something very important in, in all of this. Is that recognizing who is it that's practicing the lawlessness? And we might say that, you know, the things that they're doing, prophesying, that's something that's done in Scripture, right? We certainly see that. Certainly see that in the New Testament as, there, as the word is going out. There's prophecies that are being made. Casting out demons, certainly being done during the first century. Performing miracles, that's happening as well. These things that they're doing are not unscriptural, but so why is, is Jesus referring to them as practicing lawlessness? Go back up to verse 21. Helps us to understand this a little bit more. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here, here, here are those ones that are saying, Lord, Lord. Right? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons, practice, or perform miracles? This is the same group that he's talking about here in verse 21. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, there's something very important in, in, in these three verses and understanding it. The things that they're doing might be authorized in Scripture as far as the practice themselves. But it's important in the way in which things are gone about. It's important to recognize that God has authority to tell us how we might go about doing those things. And just relying on the fact that we're doing it in the Lord's name, it's not enough. There has to be authority for it as well. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about something that's in Scripture, and this is going to kind of tie everything together, and I hope that you will, you will see and, and gain a little bit of insight into, into Scripture, and it ties in with what we're talking about this morning. And, and that is uh, not but statements. These are used quite a bit in Scripture. Um, they, they, in fact, they're quite frequent. And they're very powerful, and we're going to delve into this as we go here. But basically what not-but statements are, it's a language technique used to specifically ex exclude something. And that's typically uh, a common-held belief or something that, that we might think. And then it points to the actual inspired truth of the matter. So these not-but statements are very, very powerful because they exclude the, the improper teaching or the fallacy or the false teaching and they point directly to the truth. And so they're very, very powerful. The not is what you think it is. Remember how we said that, that it's important to, to recognize that it's not our think so, right? I think we're doing this in, in the Lord's name. I think God would be pleased with this. That's the not side of this equation. And the but side of this equation is what God says that it is. Let's look at an example. Go with me to John chapter 6. Bearing this in mind, let's, let's do some reading here in John chapter 6. And this particular passage we're going to read from is rich with these not but statements. So listen for them as we go through. And, and see how it works, that it excludes um, what man might think, and it points to what God says about the certain matter. So in John chapter 6, let's begin in verse 26. And listen for the not and the but statements throughout. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do, that we may work for the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives to you the bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father that gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I shall certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that last day. Did you catch all those not but statements in there? Does give you a little bit more appreciation for how the language is used? To exclude certain things, but be inclusive and to point to directly to the truth of the matter and what God says it is. Not but statements have a way of, of clarifying, of making something very, very simple. Taking something complex and clarifying it and making it simple. Look what Jesus arrives at there at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on that last day. You know what that is? That's the gospel message, isn't it? You believe in Jesus Christ, you'll have life in his name, and he will raise you up on the last day. That's the gospel message, isn't it? And Jesus goes through this discourse and uses this technique to, to uh, get rid of the false teaching or the, th- or the things that might be thought of and point directly to God's word and the truth of the matter. Let's look at a few more examples here, and hopefully this will crystallize in your, in your mind. We mentioned the one here in Matthew 7, verse uh, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's the not side of it. So it's not the ones that just are, are relying on uh, doing it in the, Lord's, in the Lord's name that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what does that tell us? We're going to see in just a little bit how important it is to do something in the name of the Lord. But you've got to do it according to God's will. It's not left to our own devices. It's not left to my think so. It's left to the word of God to tell us how we ought to do the, the things that are pleasing to him. And to be, in, uh, to be in accordance with his will. Another example. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. But what? But the doers of the law will be justified. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. We know this principle, don't we? It's not hearing, not simply hearing, but what? But doing, putting into practice the things that we have indeed heard. Hearing is not sufficient. We can hear the word of God all day long, but if we don't put it into practice, if we don't do something with it, kingdom of heaven is not going to be ours. Here's another example. 
For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but what? But imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. We looked at this passage this morning in our, in our Bible class. You see, it's not our lineage uh, in, on the human plane. It's not our earthly lineage by which we'll be saved. You know, the Jews tried to hang on to that, right? The lineage was very important to the, Jew, the Jewish faith, and rightly so. Remember that promise that goes back to Abraham? Through your seed, all generations will be blessed. You know, it was important to know the lineage, the earthly lineage, if you were a Jew. But times have changed. Now it's those who are pleasing to God that are called sons of God. And not an imperishable, or not a perishable seed, but an imperishable one. And how are we called? Through the living and enduring word of God. Here's another one. So, so, so Peter, Peter is in on this. It's not just our, our Lord's teaching. Paul uses it. Peter has used it. James has used it. And this list is not exhaustive by any means. James kind of did it in the backwards order, but the, you'll, you'll see the, the point is the same. Prove yourself doers of the word. Didn't we just hear that a minute ago? Paul said that in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. Not just hearers of the word, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. See, James said the very same thing, restated what Paul had said, and uses the same type of language technique to express that. Not just hearing, but doing the word of God. One more. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 14. That the kingdom of heaven is, is not eating and drinking. What does that mean? It means it's, it's not the foods and the, and the drinks that we put in our body. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But what is it? Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this in a little bit more detail. Turn to Romans chapter 14. This is often referred to as the chapter on conscience. Paul, in the context here, is talking about matters of conscience. He's talking about things that people eat and days of the week. If you look back there in verse 1, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has a faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat and let not one who holds, uh, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For you to judge, uh, who are you to judge the servant of another? You're gonna get tongue-tied in there, don't you? What's he talking about? Well, not specifically mentioned in here, but there was a big problem in the first century about meats sacrificed to idols, and so that's something that keeps coming up over and over again. And some, in regards to that, have decided they're just not going to eat meats at all. They're just going to eat vegetables only. It's fine. Paul says it's fine. 
But what he's, the point he's making is don't judge him because he might not be as far along in the faith as you are. Because it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul's going to make that point in another place. What he's saying is you don't, it's not the meat. It doesn't matter about the meat. But what matters here is the matters of conscience. And what he's going to point to down later on is it's going to be stumbling blocks. Why this is important is you don't want to cause your brother to stumble. He makes some key points as he's going throughout this. He's going to, he also talks about days of the week. One wants to set aside a day over another, and one wants to regard every day the same. Paul says it's fine. It's not a problem. But what's important is how you treat your brother. And he's going to make some larger point here in a moment. But some key points along the way here. Verse 12, as he's talking about this, and, and, and one brother wants to do it this way, and another brother wants to do it that way, what he's saying is quit judging each other based on these things that don't matter. And he comes down to verse 12, and he says, So then each one of us shall give an account for himself to God. Remember, in, in, in all this, and your judging and, and what you're doing, and, uh, is the fact that you've got to stand before God and give an account for all this. So you need to make sure you're right on the matter. Don't keep judging your brother by what he's putting in his body or what days he might set aside other than, of course, the first day of the week and the special things that we do on the first day of the week. It's not talking about that. The first part of verse 13 is what it kind of comes down to the nub of this. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. We don't need to set stumbling blocks. It might hurt Mickey that I do certain, certain things, that I set aside Tuesdays as a certain special day. Mickey might be offended by that for, for whatever reason. And I need to make sure that Mickey is not, that's not a stumbling block for him. I need to do my part to not set that stumbling block in front of him. Because again, it goes back to verse 12. I've got to give an account to God for what I've done in the body. And verse, the second part of verse 15, probably my favorite uh, little sentence within this whole text here. I think this little sentence really crystallizes what Paul's talking about here. And the second, the end part of verse 15 says, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Does that not just hit home with you? Do not destroy with your food. For him the Lord died. The Lord died for each one of us. Am I really going to destroy my brother because of something I'm eating or a day of the week that I'm setting aside? Is that really what's important? Think of it this way. How important is it when you consider that Jesus Christ died for each and every one of us? And so he gets to the larger point in all of this, which I believe is expressed in verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Here's our not and but statement that we come back to. What is the kingdom of God? It's not eating and drinking. Brethren, it's not what we put in our body. What does our Lord say? It's not what goes in the mouth of the files of man, but what comes out of his mouth. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see how this is a big picture? How, the, how he, 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 
brings this out to the big picture? It's not the eating and drinking. It's not what we put in our body. It's peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do not destroy with your food whom Christ died. That's the big picture. Look down at verse 21. It says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Big picture, right? We zoomed in on the, the foods and, and the days of the week. We're zooming out now to get the big picture. What does Paul say? Don't eat meat. Don't drink wine. Don't do anything that will cause your brother to stumble. And the not but statement in, in verse 17 helps us to understand that. Not eating and drinking. Righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Let's now return back to where we started, Matthew chapter 7. So our Lord here, and this is amongst the, the Sermon on the Mount, as we studied not too long ago. He's, he's starting to wrap up his, his sermon that he's given there, and he's, he's making the applications. He's, he's putting the putting it back to understanding how it is that you must uh, conduct yourself in the kingdom as a child of God. Some key points that he makes here in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 21, the first part says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So here he's identifying a group of people. He's saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. It's not enough to do something in the Lord's name. There's a group of people here that say, because we do this in the Lord's name, it's okay. It's not. It's not enough to simply do it in the Lord's name, not without the proper authority. But the second part of verse 21 helps us to understand it. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, here's where it's coupled. It's not enough to do something in the Lord's name. It must be authorized by the Lord. I may say that I'm practicing something that is good and honest and, and, and righteous, we might say, as far as humans might consider it. And I'm doing it in the Lord's name. But if it transgresses God's will and God's law, then guess what I'm doing? I'm practicing lawlessness. I didn't say that. Our Lord said that. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are pretty strict terms, aren't they? That's pretty black and white. If I'm not doing it according to God's will, I'm practicing lawlessness. Here's what it comes down to. We need to do the authorized things in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3 and verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God. So see, here's where it kind of comes together, right? 
Colossians 3.17 says, For whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord. That ties in with what we're talking about, what our Lord is talking about here. Doing it in His name. So if we're going to do something in the, in the name of the Lord, which Paul tells us in Colossians 3.17, to do everything in the name of the Lord. We're talking about when we're practicing our righteousness, practicing our, our spirituality. Do it in the name of the Lord. Well, guess what? We've got to couple that with what he says in the second part of chapter, 21, uh, chapter 7, verse 21. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So I've got to do it in the name of the Lord, and I've got to do it according to God's will. We went a long way to get to very simple teaching, didn't we? But I wanted you to see how important it is, and these not-but statements, how they can, can, it can really strike at the heart of something and express it in very simple terms. We'll leave you with a couple of thoughts about this. I'll leave you with the thoughts about the many and the few. Back a few verses in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So here again, there's, our Lord is identifying a couple of groups of people. And it really goes through the whole discourse here about the many and the few, who these people are. Here he's talking about the many. He's talking about those who say to me, Lord, Lord. Because look over there in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. So here's the group of many. They say, Lord, Lord. Well, guess what? Our Lord says, those who are, will enter by the gate of destruction. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and the many are there who enter by it. That many is that same group that says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Those are the ones who practice lawlessness. Then there are, there are the few. The few are those who do the will of my Father. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, back in verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. According to our Lord, that's a few people. And those are the ones that enter by the gate that leads to life. We've come a long way in, in really understanding a simple teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And our Lord talks about how there's many and there's few. And we want to make sure that we are one of the few. We want to make sure that we are the one who is doing the will of our Father who is in heaven who is practicing righteousness and not practicing lawlessness, to make sure that our spirituality, our walk in this world is in accordance with God's will. And that's the narrow way. That's the narrow gate. And there are few who find it. Brethren, visitors, I pray that each and every one of us are on that path and will enter one day by that narrow gate. If you are not a child of God, 
I would encourage you to become one, to be a part of the kingdom, to be blessed with so much in this life and in the life that's to come. We talked a couple of weeks ago, I guess, about the soul and how the soul is eternal and how our soul has been put into our bodies, but it, it's going to live forever. And there's two choices where that soul goes, either the torment eternally or into heaven to live with God and our Lord Jesus Christ eternally. If you're not a child of God, you won't be able to enter into that place. You'll be entered into the destruction. If as a child of God you have stumbled and you are not walking that narrow path, as the world likes to say, I encourage you to make the corrections necessary in your life to get back on the right path. If there's anything that we can help you with, won't you come forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.